We're in Hosea tonight. We're in a series right now where we're, we're, we're looking at books of the Bible that, in my estimation at least, most Christians don't know anything about. If you've been in church long enough, maybe you've read the Bible once or twice, you know they're in the Scriptures. But I bet most of us, if there was a gun to our head and we had to say, well, what is this book about? What do you learn from this book? We'd say, oh, just pull the trigger because I don't know. And that's sad. Uh, not that knowledge alone is what is needed. You can... You can ace a Bible trivia test and be as far from God as, as can be, but it starts with knowing the Word of God. And why would, we, why would we have parts of the Scriptures that we go our whole lives and know nothing about when there's treasure in every single one of them? And Hosea is one of those. Now, just to review, last week we looked at chapters 1 through 3, and today we're going to look at the rest. Chapters 1 through 3 is the story portion of the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of the divided kingdom. And he lived under the reign of a king named Jeroboam, the second Jeroboam. It's a time of prosperity in the land, a time of uh, paneled wood houses and uh, nice paved streets. Well, I'm sure they weren't paved with asphalt, but you know what I mean. Uh, wealth and prosperity and military and political success. The nation felt prosperous and free. They felt like the good days were back. But the prophets knew that that was an illusion, that soon uh, the, the clock was ticking and soon their time would run out. Hosea was, in essence, their last chance. The prophets had been coming to Israel over and over again. A few weeks we'll look at Amos. He's somebody who came before Hosea. And many others had come up there to the north to say, you've got to turn around. Hosea was the last one to come. And in order to get the people's attention, God told Hosea to do a rather shocking thing. We talked about last week, this is not unusual for prophets to not just preach, but to actually do symbolic actions and to, to get people's attention by doing unexpected things. Hosea's unexpected thing was he married a woman who was known for her promiscuity and her infidelity. And when, as everyone predicted, she left Hosea and their three kids... He did something even more shocking. He went and bought her back. No man would have done that, but Hosea did on the command of God. So in many ways, Hosea's wife, Gomer, represents the religious and political and military leadership of Israel, the people who were supposed to be in charge, who were supposed to be leading the nation to God. And the children in this relationship, in a way, represent the people of Israel. So that's where we left off with chapter 3. Let's pick up in chapters 4 through 7. And what I'm going to do is just read little passages here and there and give you a flavor for what the rest of the book is about. So hopefully you'll leave here knowing, okay, this is what Hosea came to teach us. This is how I can apply it to my life. So chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Now, one of the things, if you don't know the, the prophetic books of the Old Testament, and a lot of us, quite honestly, avoid them. All we know of them is the little sections we see in Christmas cards, right? Isaiah chapter 9, right? Unto us a child is born. 
But if you avoid those verses, you don't, it's kind of a shock to read them for the first time because they're so harsh. They're so angry. And there's a reason for that. The best illustration I've ever heard of this, this is another preacher. I'm taking, I can't take credit for it. But he said, imagine that you were a person who had perfect pitch, perfect musical pitch. You could absolutely hear uh, within a hair's breadth whether a note was being sung right or not. Now imagine you're that person with perfect pitch and you live in a world where nobody knows how to sing. And everybody walks around just singing all the time, right? If, if you need an illustration, you know, come sit next to me during worship, right? Uh, it would drive you crazy, wouldn't it? You'd be constantly saying, no, don't sing it that way. That's not how it's sung. And the, the preacher who, who gave me this illustration, or I heard it from, said it this way. He said, the prophets were people who had perfect spiritual pitch. They were on God's wavelength in a time when the people of Israel weren't. They knew how terrible sin was. They knew how, how destructive idolatry could be. And then they walk around and they see all this sin around them. They see all this idolatry. They see all this destruction and it drives them crazy. And there's a reason why they're angry. It's driving them nuts that the people of God won't listen, won't straighten their act out, won't come back to God. And so here, Hosea is accusing the priests and the prophets, the supposed religious leaders of the land. These men hadn't taught the Word to the people. I don't know what they've been doing, but they haven't been teaching the Word. And think about it, that's bad enough today. You know, there's a reason why James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not my favorite verse in the Bible, I'll tell you. It's a reminder of, of the pressure or the, the importance, the responsibility that I have in calling myself a pastor. But at least now, if I, if I tell you less than the truth, at least you have the Word of God in front of you, right? You've got the Holy Spirit. And most of you, I'd be willing to bet all the money I have, that if I stood up here and, and told lies or heresy, almost all of you would sniff it out and you wouldn't be fooled by it because you know the Word. But people in Hosea's time didn't have the written Word. I mean, the, the Torah existed, the first five books of the Bible, but people didn't have it in their homes. They sure didn't have it on their smartphones, right? Like we do, we have access to the Word of God anywhere. You don't even have to pay for it. They didn't have that, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. He existed, but He wasn't indwelling human beings. And so if the people who were called to lead God's people into the truth failed at that task, then that meant the people grew up with no knowledge of God whatsoever. All they knew was what they heard from someone else. And what a crime that is. And this is why Hosea is so angry. So move on to chapter 5, verse 5. It's not just the leaders. Chapter 5, verse 5, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Now, who's Ephraim? Ephraim is one of the tribes of Israel. There were 12. Remember when the kingdom split, 10 of the 12 went with the north. Ephraim was one of them. And it was the biggest, we assume, because after a while, the prophets started calling Israel Ephraim. The southern kingdom became known as Judah because that was the biggest of the two that were left behind, Judah and Benjamin. Ephraim, so when you read the scriptures like in here, Ephraim is the north and Judah is the south. He says, Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Now here's the first time we see him criticizing the, the kingdom to the south. 
They would, they would also stumble. They would also be destroyed a century after Israel. So he's, he's identifying both as in need of revival. Verse 6, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. Now why would you take flocks and herds to seek the Lord? You know, you big old flock of sheep, big herd of cattle. Why would you drive all your livestock to the temple? Because you're going to offer sacrifices. That's something that I didn't realize till I was an adult. Nobody ever explained it to me. The Israelites didn't go and sit in a church and listen to a sermon and sing hymns. They came and offered sacrifices. That was their worship. And what he's saying is, you're going to bring all your flocks and herds, but you're not going to find me. Well, why? That's like saying, yeah, you get all dressed up and go to church, but I'm not going to be there to meet you. Why would God say such a thing? Verse 7 explains it. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. They've borne alien children. It reminds you of the first half of the book, right? When uh, God's representative, Hosea, is cheated on by his wife. And he's got these kids. He knows the first one is his. The, the second two, he's just not sure. And God's saying, you've, you've given me alien children. And, and some commentators, I, I read several commentaries on this, and one of them pointed out, you know, it could be that what he's talking about here is not just their own spiritual unfaithfulness, but the fact that they haven't raised up a generation of children who are ready to do any better. And it ought to convict us. We as Christians bear a responsibility to pass our faith down to the next generation. Now, this Sunday, I'm going to be talking about that. We're going to look at Proverbs 22.6, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not part from, depart from it. And I'm going to talk about it. It's, it's, there's no slam dunk way. You cannot, you can never guarantee that your child or your grandchild or great-grandchild is going to follow Jesus. That's a decision they make, but you should do everything you can to make your home a spiritual incubator, right? Uh, it, it saddens me to think that we as parents might be raising a generation of, of Christian kids who know American consumer culture better than they know Jesus. They know more about how to be successful in school, and they know more about uh, how, to, how, to, how to make money, how to, uh, how to get a date, how to, how to advance in life. All those things are fine. We teach them all those things, how to throw a curveball, right? But do we teach them how to follow Jesus? That's, that's raising up alien children just like those Israelites did. So, uh, yeah, chapter 6. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. So I'm, I'm gliding over several uh, other harsh condemnations from Hosea, but look what happens in verse 1 of chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us, and on the third day He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Right in the midst of all this anger, all this warning, all this condemnation, suddenly there's this incredibly tender invitation, like a, like a man wooing his wife, Right? which is what is happening. This is, this is Hosea going to the slave market 
to, to buy back Gomer and to say tenderly to her, come back home, be my wife, I'll be your husband, I'll be faithful to you, you'll be faithful to me, we're going to be married forever, this, this stuff will never come between us again. That's what God is saying to Israel and Judah right now. And it's beautiful, right in the midst of all this darkness, to remember that God's love doesn't change. And in fact, verse 2 is even more beautiful as Christians because it's talking about being raised up on the third day. And you may not be aware of this. 1 Corinthians 15 is the famous resurrection, resurrection chapter of the New Testament where Paul talks about uh, if Christ is not raised, then you and I are lost and in our sins, but Christ has been raised, so we look forward to the, the new bodies we're going to get. It's a beautiful chapter. But right in the midst of it, it says... Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, it says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And people look at that and say, where does it say that in the Old Testament, that Jesus would be raised on the third day? This is the only place in the Old Testament. It doesn't say the name of Jesus, of course, but it says after two days He will revive us, on the third day He will raise us up. So you compare this to 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Hosea probably didn't know he was doing it, but he was offering a a uh, prophecy of the resurrected Jesus. All right. But then very quickly, in verse 4, he goes back to doom. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. When I was growing up, I grew up in cattle-raising country, and so the constant subject of conversation was, when's it going to rain? When's it going to rain? You see two old men meet each other in the street, you know what they'd say? When are you going to let it rain? And the other one would say, if it was up to me, it would have rained a long time ago. That's all they ever talked about was rain, because that's what their livelihood was. No rain meant no pasture. And you had to buy hay from somewhere, and that, then you start losing money. And you would wake up. I remember as a boy, I'd get anxious about this because I knew my grandfather was anxious about it. I knew all, all our neighbors were anxious about it. And so I'd wake up on summer mornings like when it's blazing hot like it is now. I'd look outside and I'd see these dark clouds and I'd say to my mom, Hey mom, it's, it's going to rain. And she'd say, No, those are just morning clouds. They'll burn off. You watch. And sure enough, they would. And that's what Hosea is talking about here. Your love is like a morning cloud. It, it brings all this promise, but it doesn't deliver. Verse 5, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Verse 6, this idea of God wants our love, not our sacrifice, that is something that Jesus Himself quoted twice in the book of Matthew. Quoted this verse right here. Again, reminding us, if you don't love the Lord and love your neighbor, coming to church on Sunday won't make up for it. I think that's one of the mistakes we make sometimes is we see Sunday morning as a time to get in good with God. Look, Lord, I'm here. I could have slept late. I could have gone fishing. I could have done this. I could, you know, there's all kinds of places I could be. But I came. I'm sitting. I'm not going to... I'm going to even try to stay awake. It's... Yeah, I'm... Don't I get credit? And God says, no, this isn't what it's about. This is where I equip you to do what it's about. So don't go out and completely ignore what 
the Word of God says and live your own way and, and treat others with lack of kindness and lack of love and ignore me and then show up on Sunday and think it all makes up for it. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's, it's like a, a husband who never talks to his wife, but once a week he brings home a, a vase of roses. Okay, there you go. Then goes, sits in his chair. Is that going to do it? No. She'd probably enjoy the roses if she thought they meant something, but they don't. And that's the worship of too many of us as Christians. So that's, that's what chapters four through seven look like. Now, chapters eight through 14, this third part, they, they take a different tone. There's something interesting here. Um, and this, I learned a new word when I was studying for this. It's called antiphonal. Some of you know this, especially if you've ever sung in a choir. Antiphonal means call and response. So, so one person sings one thing and then everybody else sings, this, sings after it, right? So it's leader, then choir, and back and forth. So that's what's happening in chapters 8 through 14. God speaks and then Hosea speaks. And it's interesting because it kind of parallels what happened in chapters 1 through 3 because in chapters 1 through 3, you saw chapter 1, God telling us a story about Hosea and his wife. And then chapter 3, Hosea starts telling the story himself. It goes from third person to first person. And that's what's happening here. Except now, the husband in question is God, not Hosea. We're hearing the story of God's marriage to Israel. And remember, we're Israel now. We're the people of God now. So think about that whenever you read these prophetic books. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. So the eagle that he mentions in verse 1 is probably talking about Assyria. Assyria was the nation to the north of Israel that was the big bad guy on the block. They were the big empire in that day. And they would be the nation that would invade and conquer Israel uh, about 50 years after Hosea's time. And Assyria, I put it this way, it's never a good thing when another nation conquers your nation, but it's the worst possible thing when it's Assyria. Because they were a nation that didn't care about anything but conquest. They weren't interested in, you know, for instance, later on, it's Babylon that invades Judah a century later. The Babylonians were brutal, but they were interested in art and science and literature, and so they, would, they took people like Daniel and made them officials in the court of their king, and they, they were interested in, in you know, getting the best of every civilization and being the strongest and smartest. The Assyrians, all they cared about was bloodshed. They would just come and kill everybody they could, and, and the rest that they wanted for slaves, they'd drag them away, literally with hooks through their noses. So those are the kinds of people we're talking about. And, and Hosea is saying, put the trumpet to your lips, the eagle is coming. The vulture is over the house of the Lord. Uh, bad news is coming. And, and when you look back at the Old Testament, you see mistakes that previous kings have made. They've made alliances with countries like Assyria. You know, they, they've seen uh, another smaller nation has given them trouble and they've said, okay, we'll send all our gold to the king of Assyria and he'll protect us. Well, that's like bringing a tiger into your house because you've got a mouse problem. 
You're not, you're not, they might kill a few mice, but you're in bigger trouble. Um, I made that one up. That's pretty good. Uh, you know, they, their foreign policy was a problem because they didn't trust in God. They claimed to, but when the chips were down, they always called on other nations instead of trusting in the Lord, and it finally ends up catching up to them. All right, look at verse 7 of chapter 8. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. That, that first sentence, they sow the wind and, and reap the whirlwind. That's a common saying in English even today. I heard it just this week on a secular newscast. And I, I would bet everything I have, the woman who said it didn't know it came from the Bible. I doubt even most Christians know it comes from the Bible. And if you want to know what it means, it means the same thing as what we say, what we mean when we say, you mess with a bull, you get the horns. Hosea is saying, when this comes, and this is not a popular teaching, but it's all through the scriptures, when this comes, it will be because you brought it on yourself. Doesn't mean that any bad thing that happens to us is our fault, but whenever bad things happen, we always ought to ask, have I done anything to bring this upon me? Am I bearing, should I bear responsibility for this? Because if not, if, I, if we don't learn from our mistakes, they'll just happen again. And Hosea and the prophets are making sure whatever survives after this conquest, they'll be able to look back and say, God didn't desert us. God just let us have our way, and this is where it led. All right, chapter 9, verse 3. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. What is Egypt doing here? Okay, this is the only time Egypt is mentioned in Hosea. I'm pretty sure, and the commentaries I read bear this out, he's using that symbolically. He's saying, remember back when, uh, when, when, Egypt, when, we, when Egypt was our slave masters back in the book of Exodus, and God rescued us? destroyed the people of Egypt, set us free. Wasn't that glorious? Well, because of what we've done, we're going to go through a reverse exodus. God's going to destroy us and give us over to our slave masters, our new slave masters. It doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation. It's, here's what happens. We go back to a state of slavery that's like lostness. We, we lose the, the freedom the abundant living that comes from being obedient to God. And that's what happens anytime we're unfaithful. Uh, we still have idolatry issues today among Christians. And God is a gentleman. He will not force you to obey Him. And if you want to chase after something else and make that your true God, He'll say, okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm here. I'll be here whenever you're ready to come back. But you go ahead and see where that God takes you. Now, skip to chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in their arms, by their arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. See, here he, he kind of changes the metaphor. It's been a metaphor of marriage, but now he's, he's looking at Israel like a child that he loves. And by the way, verse 1, that's quoted in the Christmas story. When Jesus 
as a baby, has to flee to Egypt because uh, Herod wants to kill him. That, that verse is quoted in that passage. But think about that picture. All of, all of us who've raised kids, and even if you haven't, you've seen the beauty of a parent who really loves his little child. Think about a, a parent trying to teach his child to walk. Think about, think about a mom who works and works and works with that little boy or that little girl. And then on the one night she goes to play bingo or whatever, he walks for his dad, right? You know, because life just isn't fair. But, but it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And, and so God is using that image very deliberately. I taught you to walk. I've raised you up and you have abandoned me anyway. The more I loved you, the more you kept sacrificing to other gods. Verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Uh, if you're wondering what Adma and Zeboim are, I had to look it up too. They were cities that were nearby Sodom and Gomorrah. So uh, I can't treat you like that. I can't destroy you, he's saying. And he won't. God is not going to destroy his people. He's going to punish them. He's going to allow them to experience terrible things, but he'll bring them back. I think verse 8 reminds me of a parent who has a rebellious teenager. And some of you know what this is like, where you've got that, that kid that you love with all your heart and they just won't listen to you. And they're making terrible decisions and they're, they're tearing your life apart, and you and your spouse can't sleep at night worried about them, and they drive you crazy, but you can't let them go. And that's what God says about Israel. I cannot give you up. I cannot let you go. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Isn't it good to know that God feels that way about us, even when we're at our most rebellious? All right, let's skip to the end. Chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. This, the, you know, the gospel in fully developed form doesn't, hap, doesn't show up until the New Testament, but you can see the gospel in its latent form all through the Old Testament. Here's one of those examples. Just return. Come, Israel. Just say the words. I want to come home. I brought my bulls and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice them for real repentance, for real worship. And God is saying, I'm ready for that. I'm ready. This is, you compare this to the father in the, in the prodigal son story. I'm, I'm waiting on the porch for the first sign of my son coming over the, the horizon and I'll go running to meet him. And verse 4 says, I will heal their apostasy. Apostasy means turning away from the truth. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. And that's what happens whenever we come back to the Lord. He heals us. He restores us. Again, to call on that story of the prodigal son, one of the best details of that story, one of the, I shouldn't say best, I don't get to make that call. But one of my favorite details about that story is that when the son comes back, he's got this prepared speech that he's going to say to his dad, and the dad doesn't even let him finish the speech. 
because all he wants to say is, just come on back, come on, I'll put the ring on your finger, I'll put the robe on your shoulders, I'll put the shoes on your feet, you are back. And that's all there is to it. Uh, God, God is not interested in shaming us for our past sins. He is interested in healing and restoring and, and celebrating that the one who is lost has been found, the one who is blind is now, or the one that was dead is now alive. And the book ends with verse 9, chapter 14. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Sounds a lot like Proverbs, doesn't it? Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. It sounds like Proverbs, but it also sounds like the parables of Jesus, where Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Remember, the parables that Jesus spoke, they were twofold. People who were seeking spiritual truth would hear the parables and think, oh, wow, now I understand. There, that's a simple story that I can grasp, that I can, that I can, now I get spiritual truth. But people who were proud and hard-hearted thought that the parables were foolishness. What are these silly little stories? Give me some real good teaching. And that's what Hosea is saying about his story. Let those who are wise understand. Pay attention, because I'm speaking truth to you, truth that you need to hear. And like all spiritual truth, it takes humility. Humility comes first. You don't come to it with a, with a heart of pride. You don't come to the Word of God seeking ammunition to use against people you don't like or to win an argument. You've got to come to it saying, Lord, what are you saying to me? And, and how can I conform my life to this? So I don't know if I have any answers, but anybody have any questions about Hosea? Pastor? Yes. I Well, one thing you need to understand is most of the law wasn't really followed. And, and honestly, man and woman were supposed to be stoned. Yes. And that, I think, like with a lot of things, it was followed when it was convenient. So okay, thank you. there's a lot of examples like that. Yeah. Anything else? All right, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. Such a gift to us and pray for Your Spirit to guide us and help us to live by it and to teach it to others. Pray that we as a church would raise up a generation of young people who know the Word of God and communicate it to their children and, and, and live it out before the watching world. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen.